the areas that we, we could range over, obviously, are numerous, but the ones that seem to be to the, the forefront in terms of uh, the need for, for action, particularly on a, on a more widespread scale, the area of abortion, that as most of you know, in the recent debate on the, the uh, embryology bill, there was a change in the abortion law put forward, which is going through, so much which the, the great demand was to put the date back from the sort of final date where abortions are allowed back from 28 weeks to 24 weeks, um, and that was voted in. But at the same time, there was a huge hole blown in, in the law which allows abortions up to the time of birth if there's a, uh, a, a risk of severe, um, a, a severe risk to the health, either the physical health or the mental health of the mother, which essentially allows abortion to be done just about at any time along the way. <coughs> In, and the number of abortions worldwide is estimated to be about 55 million a year, which is just an incredible number when you think about it, an, an enormous holocaust of, of lives. In India, uh, I was just reading very recently in an article that out of... Um, something like 7,000 abortions, uh, only one uh, was male. And this is because they have been selectively, with amniocentesis, a means of d d working out which sex the baby is, selectively aborting in, in many parts of India the girls because boys are much more preferable. And in some parts of India, um, it's still known that boys are that girls are left out to die or actually poisoned with poisonous berries. We have someone who works in close association with us at Labrie. Um, her husband was working in Labrie some years ago. Mrs. Rookmarker, who runs orphanages in Africa and India. And she has been deeply concerned about the practice of infanticide, uh, which, where handicapped or normal babies are left out to die. And in... Um, <coughs> So it's, it's the issues of sort of infanticide worldwide and also in our own land where handicapped babies are maybe treated at birth in very different ways from a, a baby that's not handicapped. In other words, maybe helped to die or allowed to die uh, in all sorts of ways that are covered up as medical treatment. The, and and that in a sense, that is a form of euthanasia. And there is a growing concern that euthanasia is going to be the, is definitely going to be the next big push in this country. Most of you know in Holland, euthanasia is widely practiced. There's a horrifying article in a, in a medical journal recently from a Dutch doctor describing what goes on in Holland. Um, and just the number of, I think they reckon that something like one in ten deaths in Holland are from euthanasia. <coughs> um, and this in a country which has had a very strong Christian heritage so quickly to, to adopt this practice of, of euthanasia. And I think we was, we, already there are moves in this country for this to be, to be made legal. We've seen what's happened with embryo research, research on embryos being allowed up to 14 days. Um, the, did any of you see the article in the Sunday Times Color Supplement this last week on genetic engineering? Long article describing all the ways in which health will be improved over the next 10 to 20 years. Um, by various forms of, of genetic engineering. <clears throat> and the whole sort of theme behind it is that whatever can be done should be done. In other words, whatever science is able to do, then obviously we should do it. 
Now just, that just gives you a feel of some of the sort of major issues that one's grappling with. Now, there are all sorts of other issues in, that in, in terms of care of patients, ethical issues in mental health and so on, and I, I don't really want to, to go into those tonight. But I was at a, um, a meeting in London uh, at, at one of the major hospitals there on the care of newborn infants, and they had invited a philosopher called John Harris, I think he's from Manchester, uh, to speak. And they were very proud of themselves that the first time that these doctors had ever invited a, a non-medic in to speak. Um, and he started off his, his talk by um, saying, the meaning of life is 42. Now, those of you who read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy will know that he was quoting from there that the, um, <clears throat> he described how Hal, the computer, took millions of years to come up with the question of uh, the question of what is the meaning of life, and the answer was 42. And, he, and essentially he said, we do not know the meaning of life. And um, he recognized that that was a problem, because it meant that we didn't have any absolute values anymore, and therefore each culture, each generation would have to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. And then he went on to develop his own ideas, which are very much in line with a number of other leading bioethicists and philosophers in the field of, of that, that is influencing medicine. The textbooks that the students read, medical students read on, on bioethics, are very much influenced by these particular philosophers. Another of them is, is Peter Singer, who is an Australian, and uh, Michael Tooley. And they talk about the fact that we, for too long, have been influenced by what they call a deviant tradition in the West, the Judeo-Christian view of the value of life. Um, they claim that the Christian view of the sanctity of human life is wrong in claiming that Homo sapiens is somehow different from the animals. Uh, Peter Singer talks about this as a, as, as a speciesist view of life. Um, <clears throat> Rather, as we would talk about racism or sexism as being indefensible, he says speciesism is indefensible. So you should not, in fact, value human beings more than you do dogs or pigs or cows. He happens to be the champion of animal rights in Australia. Um, <clears throat> but he says that, that we have elevated the view that man is special to be something that is, that is far, far too important. <clears throat> But he goes on, and he goes on to, to say, in, in a, just a brief quote here that I, can't, that I agree with wholeheartedly, he says, now we can see why Western thought has ended up with a fundamental ethical principle which is impossible to defend in rational, non-religious terms. The principle of the sanctity of human life is a legacy of the days when religion was the accepted source of all ethical wisdom. Within the framework of Judeo-Christian religious belief, it makes some sense. Now that religion is no longer accepted as the source of moral authority in public life, however, the principle has been removed from the framework in which it was developed. We are just discovering that without this framework it cannot stand up. So he's saying that it makes sense within a Judeo-Christian view, but when you throw that out, then you have no more the same uh, basis for the strong view of the sanctity of human life. So he and others go on to develop the view that in fact uh, an infant, a, a baby after it's born, until it is several months old, he, I don't think he defines exactly when it is, but sometime when it has a sort of conscious awareness of past and, and present and future, an awareness of relationships, then and only then is it equally protectable uh, to you and me 
In other words, prior to that time, if you decide that this infant is handicapped, <coughs> then you shouldn't have any qualms about um, killing it. And he says, don't do it just by depriving it of antibiotics when it's sick or of food. Why not just do it painlessly by giving it an injection? Now, that's the most extreme view. But it is a common view, I think, that is, creep that is actually creeping in quietly but surely amongst the next generation. <coughs> so that the, the generation of doctors who will be looking after you in your old age may well have a very different view of the sanctity of human life from the one that you have. And if they can think that about uh, a, a three or four month old baby, why not about you when you get a little senile and you lose your memory uh, for things happening in the present and maybe a bit more senile when you're not so aware of relationships around you um, are you a person anymore? What is a person? Is this, is this someone who has value? Well, really, they're a bit of an economic burden. There was an article in the Christian Medical Fellowship Journal about the cost of the elderly, um, <coughs> saying that the cost of looking after elderly people over the age of 75 per head of population is somewhere about £1,250 a year, whereas the cost of looking after someone in their 30s and 40s is only a few hundred pounds. Um, so the, the economic burden on a society, the drain of resources, uh, if you think of the number of patients that there may be in the future with AIDS, with early dementia because of AIDS, uh, the arguments for euthanasia are going to be very powerful, partly on economic grounds, partly on the way they put it, of course, is, is on compassionate grounds, that you should put these poor people out of their suffering. <clears throat> now, when we, when we, want, when we ask um, <clears throat> what sort of... It seems to me that there are three alternative views competing, in a sense, in our society. One is the humanist view, which, in a sense, I've described, that sees everything as a result of evolution, that man is, is perhaps the, the, the most advanced, more complicated animal, but is really not that much more special, apart from his complexity. The other would be the Eastern view, which is becoming more and more popular, with the whole sort of New Age ideas, um, Eastern mysticism dressed up in more Western thought, which says that it's reincarnation. Uh, you go on to the next life. If you do good things in this life, you may get a better life in the next one. And again, that tends to devalue life in the present. Uh, that in, in, in some ways, if you know that someone on is, is going on to another life, then you may actually be helping them onto that if you put them out of their misery, of their suffering. And I don't think it actually gives a very, a very strong view for protecting uh, our, um, protecting each individual from conception to uh, to the grave. <coughs> and then the other, the third view essentially is the Christian view, which um, I believe gives a, a strong basis for for ethics. Another philosopher, uh, John, Jonathan Glover, who you often see in m debates on medical things, he wrote this, A hundred years ago we were a Christian country and people accepted that there were certain absolute commandments. Much of what we believe in or are acting against is a religious ethic. This out comes out clearly in the phrase the sanctity of life. We are moving away from the religious ethic and there are several contenders for replacing it. On the one hand, there is an ethic of the utilitarian kind, where you try to minimize suffering and in general look for the best consequences. 
On the other hand, there is an ethic stressing people's autonomy, people's rights, people taking their own decisions. Let me just go over those briefly. Um, the four different options for a basis of, for ethics. One is individual rights, my right to self-determination. So that if I want, if I ask to be put out of my misery when I'm dying from, from cancer or some other incurable disease, then I have a right to ask either to do it to myself, to commit suicide, or I have a right to ask someone else to help me to commit suicide, essentially. And, and this is a putting, being put forward as a very strong argument, particularly in America. You, you, you encounter it again and again. Um, so they would say that, for example, the right for a lesbian woman to have a child by artificial insemination by a donor. Why not? Uh, they would say. Or of a woman to ask a doctor to kill her child in the womb. Now, obviously, at some point, this could develop into anarchy, where everyone wants whatever they want, and it comes into conflict with the, the, uh, the wishes of the rest of the society, the consensus of the majority. So the second option is based on that consensus of the majority, um, what produces the greatest good for the greatest number. That's often called a utilitarian view. Um, so it might be argued that it's too expensive to keep large numbers of sick old people alive for the good of society. So euthanasia should be allowed. Or that the screening of all pregnancies and compulsory abortion where there is any suspicion of handicap is in the interests of society as a whole. Or experiments on embryos have been justified in the interests of abolishing genetic deformities. It's been put forward as finding cures for genetic deformities. In fact, what it is, is identifying the, the, the abnormal ones and throwing them away, discarding them. It's not actually producing cures that way. It's, it's killing them. <clears throat> and then the third option would be one of central control. And that is where a, a scientific or a political elite decide what is best for us. And the end result of that is, is a society rather like Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union, as it was, or um, Huxley's Brave New World. Now, some of the, the, the warning lights are flashing in that direction in relation to, to euthanasia, I think. And if you look back at the history, uh, people often think it's very alarmist to look at Nazi Germany. But if you look at the history of the rise of the idea that some people's lives are not worthy to be lived, um, you find that it happening long before the war amongst the medical profession and the philosophers in Germany in the 20s. Um, people were, were talking about certain lives that were a burden to the state. Uh, and it was before the war that the policy to um, actually get rid of certain classes of people, not just the Jews, but the gypsies, the handicapped, uh, other piece, people who were a burden to the Third Reich, were beginning to be disposed of. And it was usually the medical profession who did it. Um, so you see this sort of sinister eugenic view, in other words, the purification of the human race, making it better, creeping in. And there have been three or four books written about this recently, showing some of the similarities with our own view of human nature, that once you say that all people are not special, 
that some people may be less valuable than others, then it's, very, it's, it's not, a, not a very big <coughs> step to take to say, well, why not get rid of this, this group of people or this, this handicapped person or these elderly people? So the only defense against that is the Judeo-Christian view that says that God has made us all in the image of God and that we are all special, however handicapped, however old and senile, however small and developing, such as the, the tiny embryo within the womb. So that the, that the fourth option, and I've mentioned the first three, the fourth one is the creator's principles, and that is the, the biblical view of the, the moral rules, as C.S. Lewis reminded us, moral rules are directions for running the human machine. Every moral rule is there to prevent a breakdown or a strain or a friction in the running of that machine. And um, as Francois Mitterrand, the president of France, told a meeting on, um, in 1985 on genetics, procreation and the law, he said, when we have mastered reproduction and dominated heredity, the laws of existence change. Humanity today finds itself in one of those periods when it must choose its own rules. So the choice is choosing your own rules at a particular time in the history of our world or choosing the Creator's rules. Um, and that obviously as Christians is what we would, we would want to move towards. And just four, no, three basic biblical principles, a sort of triangle of, of principles within which all the difficult decisions about life and death and caring for people and suffering and so on, I think need to be made. The first one I've mentioned already, that is the value and dignity of every human being <coughs> from conception on. And I think it's... Christians differ on, uh, you know, what the Bible says about this and when life begins... But I find that, that the more I look at it, that, that every point that people say that life begins after conception, whether it's implantation in, in the wall of the womb, whether it's when the mother feels the baby moving inside her, quickening, which used to be thought of as the beginning of, the li of life, um, whether it's the moment of birth, um, all, all of the, the points that are put along the way, the development of the nervous system is sometimes quoted as, as the beginning of life. All of them are rather arbitrary. Uh, I, I would see that the Bible points to a, a, a continuum um, of David speaking about God knowing him when he was being created in his mother's womb, of um, the remarkable instance of, of Jesus um, conceived by the Holy Spirit in some mysterious way, but within his mother's womb, growing as a baby. And I believe God is saying something to us about in a sense, when human life begins. It's not at birth. Um, he could have, in a sense, presented Jesus as a baby at birth on, in, on this planet, but in his mother's womb. And the remarkable story of when Elizabeth, who was about six months pregnant with John the Baptist, meets Mary, and uh, Mary only perhaps a couple of weeks pregnant, hardly knowing it, I would think. Um, yet... It was John the Baptist who leapt in his mother's womb. And it's talked about that he was filled with, his, with the, the Spirit in his mother's womb. 
and one can speculate about why he was leaping in his mother's womb. Was it just a Mary's voice? Was it the fact that he knew somehow he was in the presence of the, of the Christ child? So I think that the value and dignity of every human being from conception on means that we cannot take innocent life, and there is specific prohibition against taking innocent life in, in the Bible. And we cannot experiment on human life unless it is for the good of that person, that being, however small, uh, or obviously with adults, unless it is with the consent of that person. So that's the first one. The second principle is that we, having been made in the image of God, are commanded to have dominion over the earth in Genesis. Dominion over the garden of the Lord, as it were, to look after it, to name the animals, the first sort of scientific act of categorizing creation. Um, and also to, to push back the fall wherever we find it so that a doctor's task in dealing with disease is to push back the fall. Um, to in, uh, a, um, a policeman's task in bringing law and order in, in a town, in a city, is it were to push back the forces of evil which would promote chaos and disorder. <clears throat> so we work against the fall wherever we find it. So dominion within limits. Then thirdly, compassion, which seems to me comes through the Bible from beginning to end, God's particular care for the weak and the defenseless. Um, so that he, he has a special interest, not just in the strong uh, and the, the privileged um, in, in society, but in the weak and defenseless as well, and the unborn, a tiny, helpless being that does not consciously know that it has a relationship with the Creator. But the Creator knows that he has a relationship with that child, however small. And part of what it means is being made in the image of God, I think, is, is, is having a, being made for relationships. Now, that this value and dignity of every human being, the dominion within limits and compassion for the weak and defenseless, I think form a sort of stable triangle within which many of the difficult decisions that come in medicine um, can, I think, be made and wrestled out. <coughs> now, I'm going to, I think, I'm going to stop there. And if you want to ask me about any more detailed questions on any area of, of medical ethics you're, you're particularly interested in, Pam over here knows a lot about it too, having written on it, so she can help me out. Um, can I set the ball rolling yes, and, and ask do. a rather general mm. kind of question, perhaps before we get on to specifics? Um, we as Christians hold the sort of views that perhaps we're talking about just now, and yet we are living in a society which, uh, by and large, is humanistic. And my problem is whether we're relating to the individual patient or whether we're watching laws being formulated in uh, Westminster is how we relate to our fellow man. Um, a patient comes to me with blocked tubes and uh, wants me to refer her for 
IVF and I point her in the right direction. A woman of 40 odd comes and she wants omniocentesis and I point her in the right direction. If I don't do that, I might get sued if she turns around and has a Down syndrome. Um, and then, of course, we're relating with our fellow medics. Jane here is, is doing gynaecology as well. Um, we, we relate with our, our fellow medics, um, um, particularly uh, gynaecologists. And, of course, this is happening in other fields of medicine, as you quite rightly say, because the euthanasia things are upon us as pediatricians at, at the other end of the scale. Um, I, I find this a difficult conflict, actually. Yeah. I can hold my precious conscience is OK. Mm. I'm doing what I believe is right. But at the same time, I'm living in a country where abortion yep. is actually legal. Sure. And um, one felt this tension in the MPs, the, the pro-life MPs is in the midst of the last few weeks, where they themselves would like to see abortion abolished, but they had to compromise mm -hmm. and um, see really very little change in, in the law. Um, and do you have yeah, any advice in this direction? That's a very important. Um, I mean, how do we live in a society that basically is non-Christian? Because the problem isn't that people are asking for abortion or test tube babies or whatever or research on their embryos. The problem is basically that they don't know the Lord and they're not Christians. And, it, and abortion and euthanasia and all these other things <coughs> are just symptoms, really, yes, of a sickness that is um, pervading the, the whole of people's thinking and sure. living. Yeah, I think I would say that what you have to do, we have to do two things. Um, one, obviously, is to be out there preaching the gospel <laughs> and encouraging others to do that. Mm -hmm. So that the church's task of, of evangelism and reaching out um, is, has to go hand in hand with being salt and light in whatever setting you are, mm -hmm. whether you're in business or in medicine or farming or whatever, to try and demonstrate something within that however feebly and in, in some small way, because often we feel like we're just a drop in a great ocean, um, to, to, to do that. And I think so, and in that setting, we have to recognize that however much we, we may want the ideal of, you know, everyone to be Christian and living in a Christian society, that, that is, is not going to happen. Um, but we can, if we look back historically, we can see that, you know, the evangelical awakening in, in England in the sort of 18th, 19th century, actually created a tide of opinion which helped Wilberforce and the abolition of the slave trade, for instance. A lot of the social reforms were pushed forward by Christians, um, and, and I think it was the, the there was there were this, you know, a time of the, the Wesley Whitfield revivals, which were actually bringing people to the Lord, and they were more accessible to having their consciences changed. So the two things have to go hand in hand. And I think in, in a situation like you're in, we have to recognize that the laws we may want, want won't necessarily get through, and that we have to work little by little and accept that for the hardness of people's hearts, as, as um, the, the Bible says, we accept that because people won't accept the laws of God, we may have to accept something that, isn't, that is only halfway there or a quarter of the way there or even a sixth of the way there, yeah. um, which is what people were doing in trying to push the limit back from 28 to 24 weeks, knowing it would be hopeless to ask for a complete ban. Um, and in your situation, presumably, I mean, you, you're at the sharp end of it all, in when you... when someone um, asks for an abortion... Presumably, you, you are in a position to explain something of what an abortion is, 
and the possibilities that it may lead to, and to say, look, there are other options. This isn't the only way you have to go. Well, of course, I very, very rarely am in the position of, of being able to do that, because, of course, now, the GPs yes, don't have them anywhere near me, and nor have they ever done, actually, amazingly. They, my reputation went before me. <laughs> but um, the GPs are in a position where they are dealing with that, and even there, I suppose, patients may choose not to go with that particular GP if they know his views. Well, uh, I, was, I was a single-handed GP, and I was very often in a similar situation where, uh, say, a couple would come for an abortion, uh, and the mother brings what's called a green form. I was single-handed, so there was no escape, although I was morally, I felt that it was against my principles. Uh, and I used to try and talk them out of it mm. as a first measure, mm. but very often it was a, a failure. Mm. So I was more or less forced to sign the green sure. form. One GP said to me in, in Bristol, he said, I, I can't do this on my own. I need a whole army of people to help me. In other words, he felt he didn't have the time to talk to the girl who came for an abortion. He needed to have a, a, someone he could call up and say, could you see this girl and talk to her and tell her about the alternatives. Um, he needed to have a place where, say, the girl who might be unmarried, who may be thrown out of her home by her parents or whatever they discover she's pregnant, place for her to live, so that the, the pro-life organizations like Life and Care have tried to, to organize counseling services, caring options, alternatives, um, so that the GP isn't on his or her own in trying to resist the, the, the flood of the tide of, of abortion. <clears throat> but it seems you can, you can, I mean, and, and some, and, and presumably Christian doctors would differ on whether they'd be prepared to sign the form or whether they'd say, look, there's a doctor down the road who will sign it for you. <laughs> some would be prepared to, some would say, I, I'm not prepared to do that. I think consultants are often on the receiving end of um, GPs who won't sign the, the other half of the form. And mm -hmm. I think uh, that often that position is respected, although it might be irritated because he has to go and find someone else to sign it, but nevertheless, I think it's a stand that the GP can legitimately take. Well, I think that it's like passing the buck, in a way. Well, so yes, but uh, this, is, this I, I think it is a way of making our stand, and it, I don't really think it is, because it but is a life If you are, are single-handed, and if you are faced with the situation, and where weeks count, yes. say one or two weeks can be can make a big difference. But it doesn't have to be a general practitioner, does it? It can be another hospital doctor. No, it can be a hospital doctor. Yes, so in fact, if the GP says in his referral letter, I'm not prepared, I don't believe that this abortion should be done, I'm not prepared to sign the green form, I think that at least the consultant knows right from the word go, you know, what the position is. Yes, well, I have done a couple of referrals like that where I have felt that uh, this was not justified. Mm. And I have left the decision to the consultant. Yes. But in that situation, I used to feel that I was not sharing my responsibility. Well, it's I think you probably were to the child, unborn child, really. <laughs> yes, it's interesting that I'm involved in a debate at the moment with uh, a Christian psychiatrist and a Christian uh, registrar in Obzangani trying to thrash this out. And one of the issues that uh, has been pointed out is the way the medicine works, and you've got to be a good chap and everybody's got to do their bit. And it's very frowned upon to pass the book. Uh, mm -hmm. And you know, it's, it's very easy for me, not as a medic, although I face my own ethical problems as a vet, to say, well, we've just got to take the flag and pass the book. 
because that's the only way the system's going to be changed in the end. Uh, now, is, is, is that me being self-righteous in saying that, or is that the way we've got to go, just by standing firmly against the system, causing a bit of havoc and more and more havoc the more and more of us that there are, and risking, in effect, that we might be pushed out of the system completely and have to then stand outside it and condemn it from the outside and try to set up an alternative, which... You know, that, that can be done with Christian GP practices, I think. It's much more difficult in, in the hospital situation to see how that would work out if we were forced to that situation. I've heard uh, radio programmes where very bitter uh, people have felt that they've been denied an abortion by uh, Christian GPs uh, through, through underhand techniques. You mentioned lack of weeks, where sort of delaying until it became too late... I mean, is that underhand, or is that being the wiser servants? <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure that the doctor, the GP, would be deliberately delaying, delaying in order to play for time so that it would become too late. No, they, they might rather be referring on, which might take time. Is, is that a mini? I think yeah. delaying tactics are employed by some consultants as well. They say, oh, we've got to see the... Um, social worker or, you know, mm. got to have another scan or, you know, and there's a two-week waiting for a scan. Oh dear, it's too late. Yes. Mm. I think that has, people like Wendy Savage, of course, uh, are always uh, making, taking that position and arguing that case. Mm. One of the outcomes of the recent discussions in Parliament has been that, um, you know, some people are saying that there shouldn't have to be two people signing the form, that it should up to 12 weeks just be one G general practitioner or, or a practitioner and do away with the... And uh, people are arguing, well, we've got far too many late abortions, let's make them all early, by making it much, much easier and providing basically abortion on demand up to 12 weeks. The, the bill, of course, is in the committee stage at the moment and, you know, minor details, or perhaps not such minor details, are being thrashed out and we're all you know, need to be praying very much that there won't, in fact, be a liberalisation because the pro-abortion lobby think they've had a fantastic victory, yeah. which um, maybe they have, actually. I think, I think you do have to take a stand somewhere. You can't... You're absolutely right that medicine, that the sort of social conformity within the medical world is very strong. Conformed, and, and if you're not pulling your weight, doing your bit... <coughs> I, we had two... Um, Australian anaesthetists who worked in this country for a year who came to study at Libri with us. And they said they had, they had worked in a couple of hospitals where they had been asked to do anaesthetics for abortions. And they had said, I'm sorry, we're not going to do it. And the hospital just about fell down around their ears. People were so appalled, so angry with them, that they weren't prepared to pull their weight. But in the end, they left. They, you know, it was a crazy situation. Was that in this country? It was in this country, yeah. yes. great. Mm -hmm. yes, and we've all got to sort of make our own stand in our own small mm -hmm. corner but it's just that just occasionally I have a slight disquiet when I think to myself well the law of the land does allow for abortion this woman should be able to have an abortion if she really wants it the law of the but land. But you, 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 I even wouldn't do it, and I right. wouldn't, and I would make my position clear. The law of the land may allow it, but, but in your heart of hearts, you know that it's not necessarily the best thing for her. Absolutely. Therefore, you wouldn't do anything to encourage it or to help Absolutely. it to happen. Absolutely. But, uh, but you can't stop. Do I have you can't the right stop her. to impose my 
You can't stop her. I can't stop her, no. 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 So in that, in that way, in, 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 uh, you're, so you're not imposing your views on her? Well, I mean, in Hexham, there are two of us consultants who do... My colleague does virtually no abortions, I do none, apart from the odd anencephalic. And um, the uh, rate of abortion in Tyndale is much lower than in the general Northern Legion state. <coughs> and, uh, you know, and it is levelled every so often. The GPs have a bit of a skirmish, and we get a few demos and things around Hex and be prepared for that. <laughs> and, um, you know, every so often I, I think to myself, well... They've got a point, you know, actually. Um, I mean, I don't waver one moment on my stand. But, but I, you, believe, you believe that the law is wrong. Yes, but, that's, but nevertheless, we live in a democracy and, uh, you know, laws have been voted in and uh, we are abiding by them in other respects. Um, the and I'm employed by so, the state. So that's <laughs> the law is, is not abortion on demand, is it really? It wasn't intended no. to be, so it's being abused anyway. And when we take a decision about whether it's right to proceed or not, and we give a professional opinion, we're not imposing our views at all, we're just giving a professional opinion and, and taking a decision. And if that's to say that I don't think this is the best way forward for you, then the person's free to accept or reject that. And if they reject it, they find somebody else. I don't think it's passing the book, actually. I think it's just making a clear statement about what you think about that situation. <coughs> Well, where there is uh, two or more practitioners in one practice, I would uh, support that view. But not where you are single-handed and the patient has nowhere else to go. But can I, can I have one? Yes, sir. Um, I'm, I'm a GP trainee, and when I was a medical student, I found it very easy to come to a decision about what was right. And, and, it, and I personally think it is easy to decide that abortion is... Um, fundamentally wrong and that human life begins at conception. It's very difficult to argue anything else, I think. But um, then coming into a situation in which um, I was in um, a surgery and people come to me asking for um, terminations of pregnancy, I'm faced with the, um, the dilemma that you've already raised for somebody who, who doesn't hold those same views. Um, and they are the ones who are going to have to bear the cost of it. I'm not going to have to bear the cost of it. Um, if I choose to be de use delaying tactics or something like that, um, I can prevent the death of a of a, of a, of a life. Um, but that person has got their own resources, their own mental strengths, and that doesn't include the strengths that I believe I have as a Christian, believing that that's a life for them. It's it's not a life, and for them to try and accept it as a life means uh, I think that they. A lot of people can't cope with going on um, with with a pregnancy because they don't see it as a as a um, a life. Um, and the, the the biggest problem is is postcoital contraception, where you uh, where somebody comes to you saying they think that they've just had it, they've just had um, um, uh, intercourse, and that they think they may be pregnant, and they come to a GP asking for um, some form of contraception. Now that at an early stage present. Prevents a whole host of sequelae of the more traumatic sequelae of abortion, doesn't it? And I find it very hard to sustain um, my former beliefs in that sort of situation. Um, and I think that is also how the Abortion Act came into being in the first place. It was the social costs of um, illegal abortions, which was the principal <coughs> argument 
that, that um, took, I think, that the, the abortion act through Parliament was the number of deaths from illegal abortions. Which were grossly exaggerated at the time. Well, um, I don't know, but... Um, I think um, that's Simon's Richardson's, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, every evidence is that uh, even without legal abortion, um, in, or in fact, the death rate had started to decline considerably in the 50s because of antibiotics and blood transfusion. And uh, people who turn around and say the abortion laws saved all these women from dying, in fact, aren't uh, accurate because uh, the death rate had already begun to decline um, quite dramatically. But uh, yeah. you're, you're, I mean, the other, you're, you're right. It's very hard to. I agree with you when, in a sense, theoretically, and you can accuse me of doing that, of, in a sense, stepping back from the hands-on, practical situation. Um, but I think you do have to ask yourself, you know, what, what do you really believe is best for this person, in the long run, in in the world that God has created. Um, but is taking it, is that it point a little further, then the insertion of intrauterine contraceptive devices also comes into the same category. Yes, well, let, let, let's do just going back a bit. When someone comes to you 12 weeks pregnant, say, first of all, um, do, do you really, I mean, you don't think that this is just a blob inside her that yeah. is, is of no significance, really. You really believe that the best thing for her in, in the world God has created, and, and also for that life that is already there, is that it should come to be born. Well, the best thing for society and the world, as you say, is for that child to live, because it affects our attitudes to life. Yes. The best thing for that individual, though, it's harder to say it is to let that life continue. Well, wait a minute. Because she doesn't have the resources. Many people, I mean, I mean, it's easy to talk about the worst cases, mm-hmm. but, and, and it's wrong to do it. But um, they, they don't have the resources to, say, mentally go on with They it. may not do on their own. No. But with help from other people, and also yes. with the possibility of adoption. Yes. I know that's a hard thing to ask of any woman when she's just mm. born a baby. Mm. But but um, there are all the other alternatives. We always seem to very quickly jump to the conclusion that there's only one well, alternative. It's the easiest. That's right, alternative. it's the easiest. Yes. And the medical solution to yes. a social problem. Yes, yes, it is a social problem. Yeah. And that, that's what... Yes, and, and I think that's why the act came in. It was a social problem. But, but, but our energies surely should go to building alternatives, not to opting for the quick medical solution. The same yes. with euthanasia. Well, our energy should be to social solutions, as you said, the gospel and setting up places where people can be mm. cared for. But mm. there still comes to the point where you have, you're left with a medical... You know, the medic is left with his decision and he mm-hmm. often doesn't have access to the social um, solutions. But, but I think he needs to build on those. Mm-hmm. And, and the, more, the more he gives in to the medical solution, the less those, those alternatives will be apparent. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing Cecily Saunders the, you know, talking about euthanasia and, and the hospice movement with two pro-euthanasia doctors on, uh, on television some years ago. And uh, they admitted that she described the hospice care for the, the, di- the dying patients. And they said to her at the end... Dr. Saunders, if there were hospices such as you are creating all over the country, I would not be campaigning for euthanasia. Mm-hmm. Now, if we give in to euthanasia, we will not provide the alternatives. The same way, I think, as if we give in too easily to abortion, we will not see the alternatives flourishing. 
Um, and, and I think, as, as Christians, we need to really ask, what is the best thing for this person and for this child within the womb? Um, and, and to really work for those alternatives. Now, when you come to the, the really tough ones, I, the tough questions of, you know, the post-coital, um, the coil, there you have to ask, you know, really, how, how if you really believe this is a life, can you actually go along with doing that? If she has a right to have those things, that girl can go to another doctor. But are you prepared really to compromise your principles to give her, the, to give her what she wants? Because in your heart of hearts, you know that actually that may not be the best thing for her. I know it's tough when yeah. you're faced with it. Obviously, one doesn't want to compromise one's principles, and one holds them highly. Mm. Um, one also wants to care, and somehow Jesus yeah. managed to care for his, the people he came across, and he cared for the people that traditionally are rejected. But caring for people doesn't always mean giving them what they want. Sometimes it means being tough. I know with my kids, they may want one thing, and I know that's not the best thing for them. Mm. So I hold out, and I feel awful. Mm. I feel like I'm being a, a cruel ogre. Now, I'm, I may be being very idealistic, and when, when it comes no, I mean, to the uh, crunch, I mean, it's, I, I, it's, it's a dilemma. Mm-hmm. But is it, is it uh, the same, uh, providing contraception is not the same as, uh, uh, say, encouraging abortion? Or Can I just well, say we, quickly about the we, we won't consider abortion as a means of contraception. Um, can I just say something quickly about the call? Very recent evidence seems to indicate that it's not abortifacient in the way that we generally accept that it is. Hmm. So that's interesting, isn't it? Um, Well, sorry. Um, (laughs) um, For some years now, there's been growing disquiet amongst Christians who hold our sort of views that um, the coiler's method of contraception um, is not good because it prevents the implantation of an already fertilized (coughs) egg. In other words, it does a very, very early abortion in the same way that postcoital contraception does. But um, recent evidence seems to show that um, it actually prevents conception. Where does that come from? Well, I've read it in one or two places, isn't it? But of course, contraception is a very woolly area because if you look at, uh, I mean, we've always understood, for instance, the normal combination pill to actually suppress ovulation and prevent conception in that way, but over the years, over the decades, the dosage of hormone in the pills is becoming lower, 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 lower. So now we've got very low-dose pills, which in fact allow many women are ovulating on the low-dose pills and are conceiving, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is why there's an ectopic rate on these low-dose pills and and a pregnancy rate, of course. But um, in fact, where conception occurs, the pill is still effective because it prevents implantation. So, you know, it's a gross area. It's a very difficult The whole thing. field of <laughs> contraception, really. And the new, the new pill, of course, RU486. Right, is, yes. That's more specifically abortifacient. Yes, it's very definitely abortifacient, yes. but it, it, it makes it all much simpler in terms of yes. the, you don't have to go into hospital and other... Well, you, you may, actually, but... It, it can be done by the person themselves, just taking the pill. Um, and of course, in the years to come, it may be not the gynaecologist and indeed the GPs who agonise, but the high street chemist. Yes. He'll have to start thinking about his conscience. Is he going to stock this stuff on his shelves? 
And this is where you, in a sense, you have to be clear about what you believe about the the embryo from the moment of conception. Um, because most, of, most of the abortions of, will be done very early. Isn't there some kind of guiding principle we can give to youngsters like him? Hmm? <laughs> <laughs> That's why he's here. <laughs> How you can go about I mean, keeping your principles but uh, still um, practicing medicine. That's what I've been trying to do. <laughs> Just trying to, I mean, I'm, I'm wrestling with it, obviously, from the ethical, philosophical, theological side. You're coming at it from the practical side. And that's important that we, we meet in that. You wanted to ask a question? Yes, uh, I'm trying to get away from hospitals and things, and I've only really sort of seen pictures of the, the results of the abortion and things like that. Well, when, when it all changed back in 67, and uh, doctors and suddenly were faced with having to carry out abortions, and, and the, the pictures that I've actually seen have been pretty horrific. <coughs> um, how, how is it that... that it seems to have been accepted, is it because uh, they, they, they have to carry out the law um, regardless of their own feelings and their own ethics, or was it something that the medical profession actually found easy to take on board and carrying out abortions on such a, a large scale? I'm really sort of talking out of, out of ignorance, but it was because earlier on in the discussion, people were saying that, like the anaesthetists, who um, found that the whole weight of the hospital was against them, whereas, um, I don't know, is there a Hippocratic Oath or something like that, which is about uh, saving life and protecting life and uh, fighting for life or something like that, where, where the medical, medical mm -hmm. profession does not actually stand against mm -hmm. abortion. I'm just wondering what, what the actual attitude was back in '67. Can I answer this one? Mm. Um, the, a poll was done of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists in the late 60s, <coughs> asking the members and fellows of the college what they thought about this proposed legislation. And an overwhelming majority were against it. And a similar poll was done, um, or perhaps a smaller one, but um, more recently, and the overwhelming majority are in favour of it. And that's a generation, you know, it's 25 years. So there's been a complete change in attitude, which is part and parcel of what I was referring to in my first question, really, that there is a change of heart in the nation, a hardening of heart, and an increasing level of humanism. And this, our attitude to abortion is just merely one aspect of the state of people's hearts. Generally. I, I, I would have thought that if, if these pictures are accurate, sort of representations of abortion, actually is like that, the nurses involved, that the doctors involved. Well, they steal themselves. They see some pretty gory things, really, and they just um, steal themselves to it. They might find it pretty unpleasant the first few times, but you get hardened to it. Um, some nurses, of course, um, and indeed doctors, and indeed just to um, refresh our memories, there is a conscience clause in the 67 Act which allows nurses and doctors and other medical personnel directly involved with abortion to actually not have to be involved with it if on grounds of conscience they um, feel that they cannot. If you take a stand on, on conscience, do you find that the rest of the medical profession... Well, yes, it's um, very, very difficult. Yes. It depends what level you're at. As a very junior doctor, hmm. I, said I, didn't, I said at the beginning of my job that I didn't want to have anything to do with that, and that was accepted, and people worked around 
made, but then at my level, my involvement wasn't at the decision-making process or anything like that, but my help may have been expected, but it was... What tends to happen with nurses is that in their training, they may just do a slot on gynae or else a slot on neurology or something like that. And <coughs> the timetable is programmed quite often so that uh, nurses who feel very strongly, Roman Catholics or whatever, are, are not, you know, actually don't do the gynecology that they might, that their colleagues might have done because they can't do everything. So, And then in later training, I think you would find that... Um, that, that the nurses are able to avoid that area, um, which is the same question that arises for doctors in training. I mean, should should young doctors decide not to do gynaecology so that they need to be exposed to it, or should, in fact, as we've already our vet friend has said, let's go into it so that we can actually make a stone? Mm. And is that all the Christians avoiding it? Then, yeah, is that right? Well. What are we to make of Operation Rescue? Where I mean, there's actually people say they take the view that I mean, there is something being there is a person being murdered. Therefore, as we normally intervene on the streets if there was a murder going on, if we had the courage, um, have they actually picked it outside uh, abortion clinics? That's sort the of thing. What was the Christian view about? Can I come back to that in just a second? I just wanted to. Well, the other thing I think, in terms of the change of attitude over the last generation is that, that um, partly that we, all sorts of subtle things happen to soften us up you know, in, in terms of the language that we use about the child in the womb. So you talk about the products of conception, the, the embryo, the, the language now of the very early embryo is called the pre-embryo before 14 days. Um, and it all affects our view of what's going on, a view of reality. Um, and, and it's often been pointed out that when a mother wants her baby, she calls it a baby. When she doesn't, she calls it a fetus or some other distancing term. Um, and, and I think many people are just uh, are not educated about what goes on in the womb. Um, that many many schoolgirls still think it's a blob of jelly. And uh, you find if you discuss it in lessons and things that there's actually no idea at all. It's actually the development. You, you talk about it and you present that you know the fetus is actually a living baby. Then I find attitudes do change, but uh, most of what the pickups from the telly are That's right, and the, and the television and the media, over uh, in relation to abortion, in relation to embryo experimentation, in relation to euthanasia, are absolutely opposed, mm. I think, to a pro-life position. Mm. Almost solidly, you very rarely... Especially the BBC. Yes, especially the BBC. And that the Dutch say exactly the same about euthanasia. The media have, have been portraying euthanasia as something very compassionate, very caring, very kind uh, for the last ten years. And so now the population accepted. Anyway, that's one. Mm. Operation Rescue. <laughs> big question on its own. Um, I do, just to summarize, I, I do think that there is a, a point where, <coughs> well, in, in opposing abortion, that we need to do all we can peacefully and within the law um, before we resort to some sort of civil disobedience, in other words, breaking the law, which is what Operation Rescue are prepared to do by either sitting down, linking arms to prevent people going into a, an abortion clinic or actually in some more extreme places going in and chaining themselves to the operating table <laughs> or uh, cutting the, ho the pipes on the oxygen or something like that in the operating room. 
And the very extreme, of course, is bombing the abortion clinic. <laughs> Hopefully, when nobody's in there. Um, There's no one in there. Um, and I, I also think that, that, as Christians, we are called to obey the laws of the land, um, except where we are asked to do something which is against the law of God. Um, very obviously, and we must do all we can peacefully to try and change the law. So whether it's lobbying in Parliament, picketing outside an abortion clinic, um, you know, writing articles in newspapers, whatever it is, we need to be doing all those things. And I don't think that we've done enough of those, personally, in this country. Um, I feel, in a sense, convicted about that. We can't all do everything. Um, But I really, I mean, in America, they have done far, far more on that line, peacefully, than, than we have in this country. Now, they have gone the next step in many centres and broken the law, and many of them being willing, willing to go to prison and have heavy fines um, because of that. And uh, what it has done in America, I think it has polarised things very acutely. It's brought the, the pro-choice, pro-abortion lobby out in force against them. And in some cases, it is actually the media have have portrayed Operation Rescue in such a bad light that it's actually public opinion has gone against them. So a, a good, good friend of ours who worked in the Blues for a while is now in the States says he feels at this time in history Operation Rescue is actually not helping the cause. And I have a bit of a feeling about it in this country. The way it's been portrayed in the media already on television is these weirdos um, chanting prayers or whatever? They always the media always pick up the worst bit of the demonstration, mm-hmm. unless it's and something the they approve of, people. and the most eccentric people. So that the professor of philosophy, who's also carted off to to the police station, is not interviewed and is not shown, but no, some crazy priest who's doing some weird mumbo jumbo. Um, uh, so, I, you know, I'm, I'm concerned about that, but in, but in principle I feel that it's not wrong at some point to, for us to act in some form of civil disobedience. Now, Christians differ on that. Some feel that you should never break the law, ever. Uh, and others say, yes, on occasions in extreme situations, you should. Can I just ask a question about um, embryo research? Mm. I I don't know very much about it, but I first asked the question, well, where do the embryos come from that people research on? And I was told that, well, these are the spare embryos from mothers who have been given a a drug and then produced more embryos. So I said, well, if they weren't used for experiments, what would happen to them? Well, I was told they would just be put down the toilet. And that, I mean, I found that difficult to, to handle because, I mean, if the, 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 the giving of, of a drug to a woman who is, would otherwise not have a child, presumably is, is good, is, is a good thing. The fact that extra ones are produced probably isn't a good thing, but they are. Um, and so, what is, I mean, to, to me, what is worse, actually using them to... to to, to try to, and we, we've seen recently a couple who say without this research, um, you know, I forget what the exact thing was, but I remember this couple being delighted about the research and saying without it, um, are these embryos being put down the toilet? I mean, 
I find that very difficult to... Um, I mean, I don't know if I've got it right. Yeah, you don't, but you don't have to do it. You don't have to create spare embryos. Oh, you don't have to? No. Oh, I see. Oh, That's what they no. do. Oh. They, the woman super-ovulates, and she produces several eggs, which are then oh. all fertilised, and they will... They may keep some, freeze oh, them, they may throw some away. And that was the whole thing. So oh, ha- how long can you keep that, right. them frozen was one big question. <laughs> oh, right. And, and whether they? you can experiment mm-hmm. on them. Uh, what you can do, though, is to just fertilize enough, <laughs> at, say, two or three, and implant or put them all back in the mother. Or you can even do it more simply in a technique where you, you take the egg and you put it in, mix it with the sperm and you put the mixture into the mother, in, if there's a fallopian tube yeah. that's open there. And it happens within the body, which is closer to the more yeah. natural mm-hmm. state. It's called the gift technique. Yeah. And that actually has, I think, a higher But there's a different group of patients, that's the problem, mm-hmm. to do gift. They have a, you you a need tube. a healthy tube. Mm-hmm. And also, even in gift, they super-ovulate the women and have to decide how many eggs to put back in. The problem is the reason that they... Well, first of all, if you don't use these drugs to cause superpopulation, in a natural cycle, the woman may produce only one egg. And if that is fertilised and put back, her success of having a pregnancy out of that is very small. In fact, there is one centre in this country, in Sheffield, which is employing natural cycles, but the success rate is very much lower. Okay, so we're going to use drugs... And there is some evidence, by the way, that the use of drugs actually, uh, that the eggs that are harvested, as they call it, are actually poorer quality than if it were a naturally occurring egg. And that there is obviously some damage done by forcing the woman to produce so many. But they produce this number of eggs. Now, you could say, well, we'll only fertilise two or three, but the problem is they might not take and if you've got eight or nine eggs, you're going to try and fertilise them all and then select, this is another ominous bit, you select which ones you think are doing best, which ones are dividing best and look the healthiest. So the embryologist in her laboratory, looking through a microscope, selects which eggs look the best. And they will. the limit currently is that no more than three should be put back and at the outside four, because if you put back too many... Um, you are run the risk of a multiple, high multiple pregnancy. And then you've got all these other arguments about should we reduce the pregnancy if we've got five ongoing, should we knock a couple off or three or four off, which of course is going on. Um, so this is the dilemma. You, you've got to fertilise as many as you've got because you want the best chance of the best eggs. And um, so you may have fertilised, you may have got eight eggs, fertilised them all, perhaps five or six take, out of that five or six, you choose the three that look best. The best. Yeah, what do you do with you just choose. Well, it depends whether you've got storage facilities. Mm-hmm. But you don't um, have to do that, have you? I mean, you, you, don't may, have you to. may accept. No. The, no, you, uh, you may accept to. a lower success yes, rate. Yes, that's right. And just mm-hmm. fertilise yes, the ones you yes. have. You don't have to. That's which I would see as a, a, a more a, a moral yes, option yes, in it. Yes. But this is the most. Uh, mm-hmm. At the end of the day, it, that sense, it seems to me if you're fertilising. In a sense, it's kind of like the abortion thing in reverse. Oh, you're actually, it's just the same. It is just the same. We're talking about the same as about in womb in, yes. in the petri dish. Absolutely, or whatever. And of course the problem is that, I mean, we're back to the sort of secular humanist kind of thinking. Most people aren't bothered about embryos, they just want success. Mm-hmm. The success of IVF is still very poor. And people talk about the so-called take-home baby rate, which 
is what basically the woman wants. She wants the baby in her arms to take home. She doesn't want a chemical pregnancy that lasted six weeks or something. Um, and nor does she want an, an abortion, a spontaneous abortion at 12 weeks, but she wants a baby. And um, the, the best results, it is argued, are got by this method of actually fertilizing, superovulating, fertilizing several and selecting. Um, would you would you encourage a Christian couple to have initial well, fertilization? I have had one Christian couple uh, recently, ish. The girl herself, a lovely Christian girl, had as a child, very unusually, had got a prolapse rectum. I don't know how many people medically here, but anyway, uh, she did have a problem with her back passage, and um, she had uh, extensive surgery as a child, about 12, done abdominally, uh, which completely uh, blocked up her pelvis. So through absolutely no fault of her own, she had got um, a gummed up pelvis. I operated on her and tried to unblock her tubes, but um, unfortunately to no avail. Um, and she, as a Christian, thought through the whole issue and decided with her husband that they would go for IVF and could I please refer them. So I referred her to Professor Kraft, who is, has, who is notorious because he is the one that hit the headlines for being excluded from the Voluntary Licensing Authority because he was putting back too many eggs and doing selective reduction. That's another story. Apparently he stopped doing that. But anyway, Professor Kraft at that time and currently was getting probably about the best results in the, in the country at the Humana Hospital in London. And, but she went, she said to me, do you think if I lay down before Professor Graf that I don't want um, spares created, etc., that he will abide by that? And I said, I'm absolutely sure that he will. And he did. Mm-hmm. And she really went as a Christian couple and said, look, we don't want any uh, spare embryos created. We don't want any research, even if it lowers our... Mm-hmm. Anyway, first time she got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And she's had the baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I must say it caused, because I don't know that I hold with IVF at all, actually, myself. Mm-hmm. I have great question marks over the research that went on for the 20-odd years before it ever happened, and I have great question marks about its ongoing at all, even in the pure situation of husband and wife, Christians, and I, you know. And I had great... It, uh, I, mean, I referred her on because I'm doing what the patient wants, and she thought about it, prayed about it. But um, as that baby was born, and I actually delivered it because she needed a forceps because of her previous mm-hmm. pelvic surgery, etc., etc., she wasn't going to be allowed to push, and it's on. And as I delivered that baby, I thought, oh, yeah, you know, who am I? Who am I? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I really don't know. What most touched me about the um, lead-up to the bill um, was the statement made by a lady who had spina bifida and said, in fact, that uh, I didn't want the beast this way. I'm pleased that I was allowed to live. Mm. <laughs> and that, that really brought home to me uh, because we are denied people. Mm-hmm. You, heard, you hear, heard on the radio a tremendous variety of views of yes. people interviewing. Some saying, you know, I wish I wasn't alive. Mm. You know, handicapped people. Yes. And others yeah. saying, I'm yes. only too yeah. thankful that I was allowed to live. Mm. And uh, some giving very mixed views about it. We've touched a couple of times on, on the issue of, of contraception. Um, if we think of what you said about you feel that human life begins at conception, where does that leave us? And what should the Christian view be on contraception? Should it be the same as the, the Pope? 
But, well, the Catholics, the Roman Catholics have a rather different view um, in believing that the act of procreation um, should not be separated from the act of sexual union, as I understand it. Um, and that, in a sense, for, uh, I would see this from a Protestant view, a view that's been developed over the centuries, that sexual intercourse is not purely for procreation, it is for the unity, the joining, the bonding of the couple and their pleasure. Um, and therefore, I don't see anything intrinsically wrong with with contraception, as the, the Catholics would. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the question, of course, is the ethics of what forms of contraception. And that's where we get into the issue of whether it is something that's actually calling, causing an early abortion or not. Um, and I, I, I would see that, um, you know, there are other methods of contraception which may not be as uh, conducive to uh, free lovemaking as people would like, but, you know, nothing's perfect in this world. And uh, we may have to accept that. Yeah, as Christians, do you think it's easy to draw the line between different types of... Well, as Pam has said, it's, it's, not, it's not easy in relation, say, to the, the pill. Um, there's contradictory evidence now that I didn't know about in relation to the coil. Um, there are other methods that can be used, if used carefully and well. Um, the sheath and various spermicidal firms and so on are, have a pretty high success rate. Um, it's usually due to user error that things go wrong. Um, so, you know, there are other, other means. And then there are, there are quite a lot of Christians who champion natural... Um, with, with very good results. They say that natural methods used natural. properly mm-hmm. are as good as many of the other methods. Mm. What about at the, at the other end? Of the yes. Where do you think um, the relief of suffering just mm. starts blurring with... Mm-hmm. Yes, I think I think we have to be careful how we talk about it. You know, that it is right to help someone to die with dignity. Um, so that if someone is dying from cancer or some terminal illness of some sort, you want to relieve their pain, you want to relieve their suffering, you want, as Cecily Saunders has shown, to have someone, if possible, someone with them or available to them. Bye-bye. Oh, yeah, okay. As much as possible. Uh, to, to help them with their psychological distress, if it's there. So you want to help them to die with dignity, but not to help them to commit suicide. And I think there is a, there's a big... I don't think that we have a right before God... To, to take our own lives or to ask anyone else to take our life for us. But where does hastening the end of life become taking life? Well, I don't, I'm not sure that we do. Well, you mean if, if say, you choose yeah, not, you you choose not to treat someone with pneumonia who's got yeah. terminal illness? Yeah. I think that's, that's where you make difficult decisions within the framework of the sort of the triangle that I was describing earlier. Or whether sometimes treatment is going to reduce drastically reduce the quality of life yeah. after that I think that's a decision that ideally you need to make with, with the patient and their family so that someone may choose in you know after they've had several bouts of chemotherapy and cancer say I don't want that to happen again um, I prefer to die I mean if someone is dying and they are near to death um, 
I think that there is a, there is a certain where you have to choose what treatments to give, whether you really are going to enhance this person's life or help them to die more comfortably by the treatment that you give. There's a short paragraph in the paper a few weeks ago about a, a case in America where somebody had been resuscitated, so having had a cardiac arrest, mm. and then, but being severely brain damaged. But before she was in that situation, she had told, she would made it clear that she didn't want resuscitation, but it had gone ahead, I think, I don't think, either it had been written in the notes, it had all been recorded and made clear, but then the person who had taken that decision wasn't present at the time, mm. and other people resuscitated her, and she was severely brain damaged and, you know, unable to sort of, well, I don't know quite what her level of existence was, but it was pretty bad, and she was successfully sued the people who saved her, as it were. I mean, is that... She successfully sued me. I mean, her relatives did. Oh, they made quite a lot of money out of it, presumably. It, yeah. Yes, I mean, that's the, that's the tricky thing in America. You get into these, all these complicated legal situations with living wills and all the other things. What would you do in that situation? It, I mean, it does happen here, because yeah. patients do say, people with chest infections and things like that, I mean, as a physio, I'm a physio, they ask... I say I don't want to be suctioned. I, I don't. I don't want to be helped in this way. And mm. so you're in a situation where you could put them through agony. Mm. And um, it, luckily, you know, we don't actually make that many decisions. Really, we'll say, well, I don't feel as if this patient's going to benefit from this. I'm causing a load of stress. Which then the doctor will say, well, we'll stop the antibiotics or something like that. But there's a lot of patients who'll say, you know, just I, I'm not coping. But they may not be coping today. But they might, if you yes. suck them out for a week, yeah. they might be coping much better then, and yeah. they might then have a very different view of life and death. Mm. But they might not. But they might not. Okay, they might not. All right. But, I mean, that still doesn't mean that you, know, you may, be, may be able to do other things to help them to relieve their distress, as well as mm. just the, the, the medical treatment, I mean, in terms of personal care for them. Um, and there are plenty of patients who aren't dying with terminal diseases who don't want to live. Mm. Yeah, I've worked in psychiatry exactly. yeah. um, and there are a number of people who have said why don't you just let me die or why, why do you stop me from committing suicide and that's you know, that's a tough one where you see them suffering a lot but six months to, I, I actually had to rugby tackle the guy who was going to jump off a bridge and the next day he thanked me at the time he cursed me to high heaven the next day he thanked me he said I was out of my mind on that day or even somebody who's been severely depressed six months down the road, they may thank you. <laughs> they might not thank you, but you know, I don't think that we ha we should ever encourage the view that we have a right to take our own lives. Now, the case of the resuscitation thing is a much more difficult one, I think. Um, and you know, how much to treat someone who, when they've been in a coma for a very long time mm -hmm. again is a, is a tricky one. I, as a Christian, would pray, if that was my relative, that they would die. Uh, on the other hand, some people have recovered from comas after a very long time. And you don't know for sure. Couldn't I be anecdotal? I had a mother-in-law who lived to 94, and for the last 10 years she didn't know who she was. Her husband, who was very much loved and needed, died at 57, which is a baffling thing. But my mother-in-law had been a very tough lady and during this 10 years of senility she changed mm. and the people who cared for her would say she's very gracious 
which really struck us. And at the same time, I was reading the life of Elizabeth Coolidge, the novelist. And she had a mother about whom she was polite, but it was clear the mother was a trial. She said she had some years of senility, but a period of lucidity at the end. And she said in this period of lucidity, it was evident she had made spiritual progress. Hmm. And I thought, well, we think that the conscious life is all the life there is, but God's relationship is deeper than the mind. So even in commas, I think things can go on in people. I actually heard of someone who, who was converted through an experience they had during what everyone else called a coma. Yes. Um, some sort of spiritual experience that they had. Yes. But that's, you know, that's a, a rare anecdotal story. You couldn't this to the average doctor, could you? Well, it's, it's known that you have to be very careful when treating people with comas because people sometimes come around and they remember everything that's been said around them. So you can't just talk casually over someone who who's appears to be in coma. But I think that the sort of patients who, are, who have been a long time in what they call vegetative state... <laughs> Um, you know, how much do you treat them when they get pneumonia or some sort of infection? That's a very tricky one. I think that decision has to be made with the relatives, um, and, and and always in the in the context of saying this person is of value, uh, not making the decision on the basis of an economic or social burden, which is sort of the way our <coughs> humanistic culture would take it. But That's that, their evaluation. That comes into it because we've got a finite amount of resources mm-hmm. to deal with. Mm-hmm. And if you fill up your intensive care unit with people in that state, then you can't treat people who are going to recover because of that. I mean, those sort of fight, sort of that sort of uh, qualitative decision comes into it very much, yeah, I think. Yeah. I don't think you could ignore that. Because we but then society's choice then is to spend more money on health. Or money, more money on their cars or something, isn't it? And you know, we just well, need to each put more resources into it. Well, that is an ethical decision, mm-hmm. isn't it? Um, I mean, it, it's impossible to spend absolutely, you know, absolutely all the money you need to save life. Mm-hmm. Yes. And at some stage, you do have to make decisions. Yeah. When it when it comes to resources, obviously, in in a, in a culture like ours or in America, it is a choice that the culture makes of how much to spend on mental handicap. On, the elderly, etc., etc. How much on cardiac surgery? When you get out to Ethiopia, and you're faced with you know hundreds of patients near to death's door, and you have to decide which one you're going to give an intravenous drip to, there you you just give it to whoever you you know you have to make some very difficult decisions um, about who is worthy of that treatment, and you might choose to give it to the ones who actually look as if they have the best future, rather than the ones the old and the frail. You might give it to the young, I don't know, adolescents or something. Well, a similar decision, I think, is made in uh, kidney transplants, where they have a cut-off point for age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, there are some. A, a lot of investigations and treatments have an age cut-off. Mm-hmm. It's a very tricky one, though. I mean, you know, in, in hospitals, one gets the feeling, too, you, you know this much better than I do, that... I remember when I went back to, to Bristol a few years ago, just sitting in the, in, and hearing some of the younger doctors talk about their elderly patients um, and the sort of feel that if someone was over 70 or something, they wouldn't try so hard. And there are some people who are over 70 who, who live very productive, good lives, and t- well into their 80s. Mm-hmm. 
but age becomes a cut-off, independent of what that person is like. And I think it's, it's a dangerous sort of creeping disease that, that economic, social, age, all of these variables become too important. I know you can't ignore them completely. I think we have to be very careful not to allow them to, to rule our judgments. Anyway, it's getting late. I think people have been very patient. Okay. So does anyone want to set the ball rolling on anything that we've talked about already? I had a question about your models you were drawing with the, the circles and then yeah. the square in the middle. And you talked about um, the square in the middle being more of the Christian view of man. And that being the case, uh, you as a Christian psychiatrist, uh, do you get better results than the other your colleagues and whatnot that are not Christian psychiatrists? Since you have uh, obviously a different view than they would, would have. I was just wondering if there's any any feeling that you would have for something like that. I know that's a very tough question, and it's a very subjective, yeah. you know, how you can measure something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, nobody's ever measured, as far as I know. There are certainly people who have done um, trials of different forms of psychotherapy, mm-hmm. uh, different schools of psychotherapy, and... Um, a sort of combination of different therapeutic models with a particular emphasis on the cognitive, which, which deals with, you know, uh, thinking right, uh, has been found to be particularly effective. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it comes back to the issue of whether we really believe that this is the truth about reality, so that the direction in which you're taking people as a Christian counselor or psychiatrist is towards the reality that God has, has given us. So that to help... Um, so let, let me put it this way. I worked with uh, alongside some non-Christians when I was working in psychiatry. Uh, one of them was a, a Roman Catholic. One of them was an a evangelical Christian. These are consultant psychiatrists, all working sort of in the same hospital. One had a strong sympathy with Buddhism, and the other was, I would say, is a sort of humanistic humanist in his approach. Now, if you came into, um, went into the, the consulting room of each of those doctors uh, with, say, depression, um, for the first, first interview, they would probably just be fine. They, you wouldn't see any difference between what they did, basically. The Christian one might take a bit more interest in your belief system. You were, I mean, I, I was used to ask people what they believed uh, what made them tick? What? Where do they get their values from? Okay, to get some sense of what they they believed about about life. But as you go on, so say this woman, this person comes in with depression, um, they would want to, they would they would probably all do the same thing in trying to understand where that where that depression has come from. Yeah. But as you go on in the psychotherapy, if it arises, say, from um, a marital conflict. Most of them would probably want to see the woman's husband and talk to them both together and try to help them to communicate better. 
they will be doing again the same thing, and they might well both might all get fairly good results in that. One might be more skilled. In fact, the non-Christian might be better than the Christian at helping people to to communicate better. Yeah, and I would see them all in a sense as as being under the common grace of of God. Okay, in that. Now, if you go on then and talk to this woman, say she has uh, a lot of bitterness towards her own mother for the way her mother used to criticize her a lot. Uh, she feels very angry, and you explore that, and she feels very guilty, perhaps about certain things in her life, maybe some sexual abuse or something where she feels she was partly responsible. Um, how she deals with that may be very different the way that the humanist would deal with it, the Christian um, and the Buddhist. <laughs> okay? So the worldviews begin to inform what they do the more you get into it and the more you deal with attitudes to, in, in relationships, attitudes to guilt, forgiveness. It's striking that in the psychotherapeutic and counseling literature, there's very little about forgiveness, which is right at the heart of the Christian faith. And I, I find more and more that people's problems relate back to a lack of forgiveness in some relationship somewhere in their lives either not being able to forgive themselves or, or certainly not forgiving others. So, um, now if we believe that Christianity is really true, then we would expect surely that a Christian, the more we approach to the truth as God has revealed it to us in relation to forgiveness, to guilt, to anger, how we deal with those things, the more we are helping that person to live within God's reality. The more you move away from that, the more you actually, you may produce short-term solutions, but in the long term you may create more problems because you haven't helped that person to deal with it in a way that's really true to the way they're made. You see what I'm saying? Yes. So I think one would expect, hopefully, that. Now, there are a lot of Christians who, um, who are hopeless at counselling. <laughs> and there are a lot of non-Christians who are actually very skilled at human relationships. Um, Part of the reason I ask is... I deal with people many times that need counseling. Yeah. And not coming from the area, it's difficult to know where what to do to send them to. Yeah. And so that's part of the reason I asked the question. I obviously thought that I would like to send them to a Christian counselor, but I also sometimes wonder, you know, where do I find one? Yeah. And what is, that, what is that Christian counselor doing too? Yes. I'd like to write into that. Um, my wife, as a result of... Uh, Occupation, which was a health visitor for five years, eventually went down with depression. Mm. And she was treated by her doctor with medication. Didn't actually go to a psychiatrist, the doctor just took medication, and this wasn't succeeding. And then she was a Christian, so in the end, she went to a Christian blood organization in Corbridge, which is Christian counseling. And um, that turned around. And mm. she, it was all, uh, as you say, the, um, the depression was. Uh, the lack of forgiveness that she mm. felt was in her life, that she was failing somehow the people that she was supposed to be serving. Mm -hmm. And um, this had just played on her. And mm -hmm. it was the, uh, the the self-esteem, if you like, that mm -hmm. um, the Christian approach gave back to her through that she was forgiven. Um, yeah. that's, that's that helped that her mm. tremendously. Yes. I think that's a huge problem for health professionals because you're faced with such overwhelming needs, especially a health visitor. Because you're faced with physical needs, social needs, everything, and it's just overwhelming. Well, that was one of the things when I asked a question before about uh, going out and being interested in all things, that it, 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 
you have to be fairly, very well convinced of your own Christian mind to withstand a lot of the pressures that you do go out and get. And it's very subtle the way you can be worn down. Yeah. Um, it's absolutely right. Huh? And this is where you can't do it on your own. You desperately need other people. So if you're going to... You know, in, in, when I started psychiatry, thankfully, there were four or five of us starting together, Christians, and there was also a Christian consultant. And we used to meet once a month and fresh out how our Christian beliefs relate to what we were doing. Um, and uh, I think without that, I, I might well have not got through. Mm-hmm. Or if you're, you know, doing English literature, my daughter's doing English literature at A-level, uh, she's flooded with all sorts of ideas. Um, and uh, she needs somewhere where she can come home and talk about, or friends she can talk about these things. Um, so you, you certainly can't do it on your own. You, you do have to be, be careful. Mm-hmm. And some things, as you said in that uh, in Ronald's lecture, are just not helpful at all. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, especially in, in the area of film and theatre, mm-hmm. I think there are things that you might say, no, I can't cope with that. It's not right for me. It, it actually causes me to sin. Yes. Uh, whereas someone else might be able to go and remain somewhat critically objective and distant from it. Mm-hmm. But um, where we got away a bit from? Where will we go? Um, yes, just, just I, I think that, that er, every person working in a church really needs to try and find out what resources there are available in their area of counselling. Um, and they may find that there's you know, a, a specific Christian counselling network has, has sprung up in a number of cities in recent years. Uh, there may be an individual that they, they get to know just on the grapevine, and really you just have to keep your ear to the ground and find out by experience. Yes. You know, I have a, a sort of, we have developed a, a network of telephone numbers around, um, around England, really, of people, because I get, tend to get people phoning me and saying, who can I refer this person to? And there are a lot of areas where I don't know anyone, but there are some where I can say, yes, in Nottingham, there's such and such. Um, get in touch with them. Okay. So it's really, get, you really need to, to know and to have faith in the person you're sending them to. It's hard when you send them into the unknown. But that takes time to get to know. Yes. <laughs> Actually, in relation to your, your, your wife's situation, I think that's, you know, that, that there would be another, I can imagine another psychiatrist in the scenario that I described just now, who would just, for this woman with depression, dish out pills. Um, And a lot of psychiatrists, I think, in their latter years, get tired of dealing with human suffering. And all they have the energy for is to say, here's some antidepressants. Um, And and there is a place for antidepressants. Um, I think when someone is depressed so that they are totally preoccupied with themselves and their problems, when they're not sleeping well, when they're not eating well, when they're not interested in anything else around them, you're getting into the area of what I would call clinical depression. And there is, there is quite often a biological vicious circle set up at that point, which needs to be broken with antidepressants. But it's often not enough just to do that. You also need to talk about maybe the things that precipitated the depression, which is where, as you rightly say, the, the counselling comes in. And a GP, you know, he hasn't got time to do that very often. He's very pressed for you know, the average of a few minutes for every patient. How can he deal with anything but just a handful of, of the patients who come to him with depression? Um, so he needs a sort of network of resources around him, ideally. That's 
but it very often doesn't doesn't happen. Are you in medicine? Yes, I, I'm GP. You are GP. I'm just wondering how you about pressure time because I think there's a tendency to think, well, perhaps if you're pushing GP, you ought to be more available. Mm. The kind of problem that this this chap here, you 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 were mentioning, yeah. but um, it's just an impossibility really to. Mm devote a lot of time to a lot of people. <coughs> People's lives are very complicated, mm-hmm. their backgrounds, and I, I thought what he said about um, antidepressants was quite helpful because um, um, when people's own inner resources um, are more adequate, then they can begin to view the problems more constructively, whereas there's a problem with forgiveness, for instance, and self-esteem, um, as an example, could probably have been handled more effectively if the underlying weariness and fatigue and, and depressive, pessimistic attitude had been alleviated. Uh, well, not perhaps of everybody, but certainly the top of people. I'm inclined to go along with that. In studies that have been done of depression, treatment of depression, the combination of antidepressants and psychotherapy is is better than either one or other on its own. Um, by and large, this isn't what we're talking about, clinical depression now, so fairly severe depression. And again, you know, we must recognize too that, that when, when the body does sometimes get into a biological vicious circle of se- really severe depression, um, I describe some of that, some of the sort of symptoms of that in the first chapter of my book on depression. Uh, th- there may be a necessity for hospital admission when someone is a, a, a risk to themselves in terms of suicidal ideas. Um, and sometimes um, ECT, electroconvulsive therapy, is very effective in breaking this vicious circle. Most people throw up their hands in horror when you mention that sort of thing. But it's, um, it's certainly very dramatic to see the effect it has on some people in, in severe depression, old and young. Um, so I, I, uh, this is where the biological aspect of depression has to be taken seriously. Nobody really knows how it works. <laughs> it's always a bit frightening to use treatments. You don't know how it works. But it, it, um, people believe it, it changes the level of neurotransmitters in the brain, which affects the, the sort of conduction speed of uh, what's going on in your brain. <clears throat> there are all sorts of theories about how it works. That's, um, my father had that, and that was what was explained. It's like a battery had run down, mm-hmm. and um, he wasn't get the proper transmissions around his system, mm-hmm. as you say. And the ECT worked wonders, isn't it? They did. Mm-hmm. And that was a long time ago as well. Yes, that's right. And this, this again is where you know a counsellor needs to be aware of when they're getting out of their depth. So that when some when you're talking to someone who's depressed, if they're totally preoccupied and don't, you don't seem to be getting anywhere, then you need to ask for help. Don't go on too long in that situation, because you may be playing with something that uh, could be dangerous in terms of this person's... They may become suicidal at some point. You may not be aware of that. Or also, there may be a medical problem. It's the other thing to be aware of is, is that... Uh, I remember one girl who came to us at Labrie from South Africa, a very sort of big, healthy, strapping athlete... And uh, she used to go out walking late at night. And it's in the middle of winter. And she was quite depressed when she came. And she seemed to be becoming more depressed and inward-looking. She went out at night um, in her shorts and in a shirt 
And I said, don't you get absolutely frozen out there? She said, no, no. And then she used to go out when she was quite low and sort of beginnings of suicidal ideas, and I got quite worried about her wandering around the lanes. And one day she came back and she was crying up in the bedroom. Somebody asked me to go up and see her, and I went up and I just put my hand on her arm. Like all good doctors, I felt her pulse. And um, it was racing away at about 220 or something. So I looked up at her neck. Sure enough, she had a big thyroid gland. And she had a very high level of, of uh, thyroid hormone in her blood. She had to have a partial, a part of her thyroid removed. Um, but this was causing... We, we, there were other things in her family that were also difficult. But I think it was this that had precipitated the depth of depression. So again, to have a doctor involved is always important so that they know what is going on and can check out the physical side as well. Someone else was... Just, yes? If physical injuries aren't always completely healed mm. in this life, should we, as Christians, expect emotional injuries mm. to be completely healed? Mm. Or should we accept that we may go through, through life with certain fears and phobias Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always much more difficult to accept the boundaries of, of how much can be healed in, in the psychological area, isn't it? I mean, the physical, you know, if someone's lost a leg, um, you know that they've got to come to terms, you, they know exactly what they've got to deal with. It's more difficult, I suppose, if, say, someone's had a stroke or something, you could probably give better examples of, you know, where they, they, they do all sorts of exercise and you don't know how much strength they're going to get back so you keep going hoping it'll be a bit more but eventually you get to some sort of plateau where you 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 say well I've got to come to terms with this with the psychological it is much more difficult and uh, I do think that there are there are sometimes times when you know it's part of our it's hard to work out what is temperament and personality and what is additional fears and phobias um, I know that my children, for instance, are very different in temperament. One is very sensitive and uh, to color, to, to, to beauty, um, and also to pain. You know, to be a sensitive person is a good thing. It has its good sides and bad sides. And one is very easygoing, laid back, you know, life goes by. Um, and they're going to have different things to deal with in life. Um, and... Uh, put them in a situation of stress, I think they will react very differently. So, to have some acceptance of who we are as people in our, our vulnerable areas, uh, and yet also to where there are areas, say, of, of deep hurts, where there is lack of forgiveness. We haven't really dealt with that before God. Um, you know, I, it, it, I think we need to deal with the things that we can and since then we have to leave the rest in, in God's hands. You know, I've done all I can, Lord. You know. um, it's hard to, to generalize on that you know, without going into a specific problem and knowing. Certain phobias, I think, for instance, you know, can be helped, as I mentioned earlier, with um, things like agoraphobia and um, phobias of... Uh, I remember one girl who had a phobia of pigeons who worked in London. Yeah, and we were able, quite simply, through a desensitization program, to, to help her. 
she couldn't go to work, she couldn't go through the square with the pigeons. Um, but more generalized fears and phobias are hard, harder to deal with. And I, I think, too, of, of um, oh, one woman that I know who's, who's very obsessional. Very, uh, she couldn't stand children coming into her house. Everything has to be absolutely perfect, neat and tidy. Um, and children coming to the house used to make her very tense because they would touch the walls or they would uh, bring in dirt on the carpet, you know. And every time children come, she'd put newspaper out over the carpet. Um, now, gradually, over the years, uh, she has been able to let go some of, of that desire to control everything. But it's been a slow... She's been on some medication, which has helped. Um, a certain antidepressant that actually is more effective with obsessional symptoms like that. She's. We've talked to her a lot about areas of anger and forgiveness in relation to her parents. Um, we've just helped her to, in a sense, say, look, you must allow your daughter to tidy her own room. You don't need to go in there every day and vacuum it and tidy it. And her daughter's room is now out of bounds to mother, except once a week. <laughs> and she's been able to accept that, which is a major miracle for her. So little by little, she's accepting, letting go of control. But I think she'll always be quite a controlling person. That's part of, of who she is. So I don't know whether that answers your, your question. But. I get the feeling that often as, as Christians we feel, well, we should be adequate for any situation. We shouldn't say... No, I can't. I know I can't cope with that situation, so mm. I'll avoid it. Um, no. Can I? I was just saying that right. I read an, an interesting article in the Reader's Digest about a, a foster mother who fostered a um, mentally retarded child from a child, and it was really mentally retarded. Couldn't really do anything for himself, and went on for years and years and years, and nothing. Seemed to be no development until he was a grown man. And one night she heard this beautiful music coming from yes, downstairs. Yeah. And she went down there, he was playing the piano. And uh, from then on, he became a concert pianist of some sort. I can't remember the full details, but she wouldn't give up. You know, she just mm. went on. But I think that was the one area that, where he had a particular gift. It was rather like autistic children who seemed to have a particular. But he hadn't shown any signs of it before. No, no, no. He just suddenly right. hadn't taught him anything. He hadn't taught him the piano. It's just Extraordinary. Yeah. He'd obviously heard music and listened to people. Yeah. So I mean, that is the question of when do you give up or not? <laughs> but I, but I think there is there is um, especially amongst Christian workers or particularly full time people in ministry or even health workers a feeling that 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 you know you should be able to cope with every situation and that that we have great difficulty dealing with failure. I mean I have that same problem myself. I feel I should be adequate for every situation and, and uh, I mean the great comfort is in looking at the sort of heroes of the Bible is that many of the great men of God were disastrous failures at one point or other in their lives so, or Jonah you know hanging around wishing he could die and Elijah the same after the great battle of the prophets of Baal he goes and terrified of, of Jezebel and, and um, sits down and says Lord let me die Actually, he was just physically and emotionally exhausted, I think. Um, David, 
adultery, murder. You know, his. I mean, you look at the Psalms and you see a man who went through terrific depressions, but also tremendous heights of worship and praise and and love for God. He was he was obviously a sort of guy who went up and down a lot in his life. Man of great passion. Um, so I'm comforted by the sort of realism of Scripture that we don't have to be adequate for every situation and sometimes we fail and the Lord picks us up and says okay get on with life and somehow we need to learn with others they need to help us to learn where our strengths are and where our weaknesses so that we fit into the whole body of Christ we can't be the whole body we have to be a, a finger or an ear or whatever it is so again, it's important that Christians see the concept of, of body life and of sharing in the ministry as one that's really important. And I think ministers you know, have a big problem because they feel they've got to be all things to all people. Thankfully, we have a, a shared leadership in our church where there are three elders, a big pastoral team, and none of us feels the total responsibility. You know, we share it. It has unique problems of its own, of course, but... It's a tremendous relief not to feel you've got to be the one who does everything, preaching, pastoring, the lot. Were you developing a theme this afternoon, particularly? Um, and, uh, no. Didn't, uh, no, I, I, in a sense, I was just sort of open to discussion on what we were talking about earlier, or even on if anyone had any questions about medical ethical things. Well, I was wondering about medical ethical yeah. things. Do you want to well, it, it was just mainly in the context of what guidance there is to, um, to limit where, how far we go medically. It came to light, actually, once Burke talked to me with this mad cow disease, where the theory is that we're feeding herbivores with animal foodstuffs, and therefore we're going against nature, and then we're causing problems. And I just wondered if uh, science is uh, doing a lot of that and unbeknown. I was quite impressed. I've been dealing with um, people in Poland and uh, mm. talking about pollution and the way we're going. And uh, he said, in fact, the people in the streets are actually around this particular city are rotting. Their faces are rotting. And it brought to mind the revelations, you know, uh, yes. and with the destruction of the ozone layer, bring again revelations that the, the heat we are going, the heat is building up when we're going to, and uh, the sores plagues will infect us, we're now holding their faces, our skins are actually rotting and the children are oh, nearly 90% in this particular area of several hundred thousand people are 90% sick. The older people are the ones who are surviving problems more than the children are. I just wondered with this guidance and where science and medical is taking us in. I think it's a, it's a general thing in a sense of you know, that Christ being Lord over the whole of life, that we as Christians should be deeply concerned about our environment and how we treat nature, um, how we redeem it and, and care for the garden of the Lord, as it were. You know, the, the Genesis mandate to have dominion over the whole earth is, is saying we, we are responsible to have care for the earth and look after it and to push back the fall wherever we find it. And one of the areas is in the area of pollution and our irresponsibility. Um, and Christian, this is again a view of spirituality, isn't it? That we sort of think to be spiritual means that we, we get involved in church and prayer meetings and, and all these things, but to actually go out and 
get involved in the local politics in relation to the environment is seen as a bit of a waste of time, unspiritual activity. Uh, but it's all part of God's world, and, and, and we need to be involved. We need to be having an influence in this area. Now, you can't be involved in everything. You have to choose your particular area of concern, I think, and, and focus on that. Um, one maybe, and we, we have in our own church, um, we have different people involved in different sort of issues so that they can report back to us from time to time, say, if there's a bill going through Parliament on embryology, you know, please write to your MP, and these are the things we need to be concerned about. Or there's a bill on, on uh, ecology and environment, you know, please write about this issue. And I think if that were happening in every church, uh, we, would, we would actually have quite an impact. <clears throat> So I think the way the church is structured is very important, actually, because I agree with you about being released for um, working outside of the church organisation, but a great deal of um, evangelical Christians' preoccupation is in keeping very structures going, I think, and of, of personal structures in terms of devotional life, so, yeah. which I'm not decrying. What I'm saying is that there is a structure that um, Christians are almost... Um, burdened by me. Mm-hmm. and um, I think it creates mental ill health rather than <laughs> the opposite mm-hmm. because we're mm-hmm. trying to do too many things or yeah. are constrained by artificial burdens which have no relation really to everyday life yeah. Yeah. Line, so that you get many non-Christians who are actually happier and more integrated and contented people than the Christians which I think is a terrible um, commentary mm-hmm. And we're adding to more of your burdens now by suggesting you get involved in more things. Well, it depends on the church's expectation. Yes, yes the, whole, the whole thing of Christian meetings. Is a, I mean, we actually in our own church just have one service on the Sunday because we feel it's very important that the families are able to be together on the Sunday evening, afternoon and evening, and sort of feeling you have to rush out to another church service or whatever. Um, and uh, we have just one meeting in, in the week. Um, and yet our, the members of the church are involved in all sorts of other things, either through their jobs or in, in particular interests that they have. But we do have to be very careful, I think, in not trying to do you know, too much. Um, but it comes back to this, this view, I think, of spirituality and what it means. We have to help each other to, to focus our priorities, don't we? I mean, yeah, we, we have friends too who have come back from Hungary and Romania with horrific photographs of villages where people are just covered with, with grime, with pollution in the atmosphere. And uh, thankfully, you know, there is some headway in, in the Western world, but we haven't got much time. Science is moving further and further and further into medicine and, med- and medical ethics, as it were, and creating problems. And this morning, I think you've generally sort of said, well, there's some good in most things. Pick out, you know, what's good and what's relevant and attach it to what you, your own beliefs. Uh, would, do you think that you would always find something good 
in a new development and at what stage do you feel that the line has got to be drawn firmly? Yeah. Thinking of all yeah. this transplant business and embryology mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Right. Yes, obviously there are, there are, there are boundaries that you come up against. So the whole mentality in, in a lot of scientific worlds, I said this morning, is that if it can be done, let's get on and do it. Um, so you, you have the beginnings of animal-human hybrids. Now, thankfully, um, they don't grow very far, um, just in terms of the combining of the, of the genetic material. Um, but, but you have things like cloning in the genetic world, making clones of, of individuals. It's, it's happening in the animal world, and one can see that it could happen in the human world somehow in the future, God forbid. But you know, there, there are boundaries where we have to say, no, we would not want this. Um, and, uh, Is it possible to define a principle that does draw the line? Well, yeah, we, I mean, I'm think sure we where the line is, is to be drawn. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take, take the, yeah. I mean, if you do, just in just taking the um, the other medical examples of, uh, I would say that there are principles which are not there uh, in detail, as it were, very clearly in Scripture, but there's a very strong view of the family right through the Bible as being very important to God, you know, and blood ties, links in the family. And I, I think that the whole move towards using donor sperm and ova um, in people who are, who are not able to have children themselves is a move towards the breaking down of the family. It undermines the family. So I, I would set a boundary at, say, not using donor sperm or donor eggs in in vitro fertilization or in, in artificial insemination. Fine to use those, to use artificial insemination, say, to, to bypass a particular organic problem, but not to, um, not to bring in uh, sperm and ovum from the outside that marriage relationship. So I would see a boundary there which relates to, f this, as it were, the sanctity of the family. Yeah? Now, a lot of people say, no, it doesn't matter. But I think it does matter, because I think we'll see the consequences of it down through the generations. So that uh, Dr. Edwards, who, who is one of the pioneers in vitro fertilization, says that now we're able to separate sexual intercourse from reproduction completely. So people have sexual intercourse for pleasure, but the reproductive bit will all be handled by the technicians in the laboratory, so that you can choose uh, which embryo you're going to implant, make sure it hasn't got any defects. Um, you can, if you have problems, then you bring in a donor sperm or donor ovum and so on. And it's exactly what Huxley describes in Brave New World, in the central hatchery. <laughs> so I think, you know, we have to work out from the Bible... But you wouldn't the draw the line at overcoming an organic problem. No, I mean, for instance, in is vitro... Is that not simply, though, on the other side of the coin, is that not simply that uh, accepting a limitation on your freedom, as it were, that we talked about this morning, uh, which has to be accepted and come to terms with. Well, I think, for instance, if, if um, the husband uh, has a low sperm count, say, 
and they haven't the, the couple are infertile uh, and you can actually ha- concentrate the sperm and make sure the sperm and the egg get together um, using in vitro fertilization in other words, you take the egg uh, and you take the sperm and you put them together and, and, and put the mixture back into the woman's fallopian tube you're actually as it were bypassing or, or finding a technique to to get around what is an organic physical problem. Yeah? It's, it's a, a medical solution. And that's what we're doing all the time. I was going to say, it's, it's a balance of having dominion over nature yeah. through scientific endeavour, but within biblical guidelines as mm-hmm. limits, yes. Can I ask on that one? Are you likely to perpetuate low sperm male then, in that, in that situation? I mean, because of the possibility that that, that person's well, son may be... Well, well then, it may be a weaknesses, thing. yes, that we're perpetuating weaknesses. I don't know, I just wondered, is, is it... I don't know whether it's related to genetic... No, well, it's genetic I just wondered if there was something in, in the way we are made and fallen, perhaps, that um, to start manipulating ourselves this way is not the right way back. I don't know. I've got this but it's, it's, it's a dangerous argument, that one, because then you could say, well, people with, um, with diabetes or uh, cystic fibrosis or whatever should not be allowed to, to breed because you're going to perpetuate these... Uh, well, we are saying, in a sense, in a sense by saying we will now... Um, we're now getting to the stage where we will investigate the genes and change the genes so that they don't... Well, what we're saying at the moment is that you identify the ones that carry the gene for cystic fibrosis and you, you get rid of them, mm-hmm. the embryo, right? Um, well, I thought if, the next stage would actually change well, the, the gene. Ne- the next stage would be, if you could, actually specifically change that gene. I would not have a problem with that. Okay. I just wondered whether no. in the long term <coughs> that sort of approach would be changing something which was in... Um, perhaps interfering with a natural evolution, if you like, which built into it by God. But it's, it's much more easy to see, I think, the weakness of that argument by applying it to adult cystic fibrosis people, given that with treatment now, people survive into adult life with cystic fibrosis. So previously they died in childhood, probably. Yes. Now they're old enough to bear children. Yes. Well, clearly, by that argument, it's wrong to allow people to reach adulthood certainly wrong to allow them to have children, which we wouldn't accept. Yes, I, I'm, I'm just asking for guidance. I mean, I, I also remember reading a, a little article which t- talking about um, this sort of abortion, and they, they described um, a person who had, uh, was born with syphilis and had many other defects as well as being deaf, and the, they asked, they invited a, a people to suggest whether this would be the right case for abortion. He said, yes. He said, well, you've just killed Beethoven. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I remember reading about, was it uh, the fellow Brown? Um, he was Christy Brown. Mm-hmm. Back, he, he was born very much deformed and uh, almost for many years couldn't communicate, but eventually he could communicate. Mm-hmm. And he became quite a celebrity and produced beautiful works. Um, and I just wonder whether we are... It's right to deprive of that. I think this is where we, we have to balance the, uh, as we've been saying, the need to have to push back the fall wherever we can 
within certain boundaries so that um, the task of medicine in the future, if they can identify very specifically that gene and, and replace it with a healthy one, which seems to be a long way off, of cystic fibrosis, I would see that that is within the legitimate boundaries of medicine. Um, but at the same time, until we can do that, we should not in any way eliminate people with that particular defect. So that we have a that that, um, that we as Christians should say that every individual, however handicapped, however small, however weak, uh, is of value to God. Uh, and that once you start saying that some individuals are not of value to Him, then we can dispose of them at will um, for the good of the rest of the race. Then you're immediately into a sort of eugenic policy, which is breeding for good qualities, you know, the Aryan race of, of Hitler. Um, and that is that is not a Christian view at all. But it's there in, in our culture, and it's come, becoming more and more strong, I think. You know, for economic reasons, for social reasons, and grounds of compassion, whatever, all sorts of arguments are used to eliminate people who are a burden. And you don't think that the tend to so gene manipulation will lead us to seek all sorts of um, other antisocial behaviors and do we all look appear the same I just do I, yeah there, there is there is a danger you know I, I, I think I would draw a limit and I'm not quite sure where you how you define the limit in relation to gene manipulation um, I think it's going to be very hard you know you could say well when someone has um, particular traits to certain unsocial character. But you won't be able to define a gene for that. But you are defining what was the perfect man in the first place by saying, well, if this if it was um, cystic fibrosis wasn't in the perfect man, so we look for that now. Oh, now that's clearly evident, but there could be a lot of other things. How do you define at some stage? No, I think far I think certainly I think the lack of, of physical disease I mean, in, in all sorts of ways, we're working against trying to eliminate disease. We'll never get the whole way, I and mean, that's heaven. Um, but we certainly can work against it in all sorts of areas. Um, and, and in that sense, we are trying to, you know, over the, the last 200 years, we have conquered an enormous number of diseases. Moving to what some people might have said 200 years ago, what you're saying now. You know, that we really shouldn't conquer these diseases because we're trying to get the perfect man. Um, I think in the psychological area, it's much more difficult <coughs> to define. And I don't, I don't think we will be able to manipulate there at all. I wonder, um, well, well, we've conquered them, but coming back on Earth again, I'm not saying this is my viewpoint, but how many of the diseases were naturally conquered by not surviving? In a sense, I'm not saying that's the right way, but... Have we conquered many diseases, or are we um, perhaps created? I don't know. If one goes back in history, how many diseases did we have 2,000 years ago as opposed to now? Well, if, you think, if you think of things like smallpox, so, which have been eradicated, and, and, and um, just the treatment with antibiotics of many infectious diseases. Now, the diseases, I think it would be right to say that the, the, the problems we're dealing with now, are so many of them are man-made a man produced in terms of wrong diets, in terms of uh, road accidents, uh, in terms of sexual promiscuity. I mean, just the vast bulk of, of the expense for the health service goes on dealing with, with diseases that a change in lifestyle 
would do a lot to help. Isn't that, isn't that fair? Oh, yes. True. Smoking, drinking? Yes, and smoking is a major form of, can of, of cancer. It's lung mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm. and, uh, strokes, heart attacks. Those are three main areas of the causes of death. The other main areas are accidents. So of the four main areas of causes of death, three, uh, three are radically affected by smoking habits. Mm -hmm. You and think of AIDS. I would say that a lot of our the health problems that we look at now, uh, there weren't health problems that we had 100 years ago, and a lot of that has to do with the age of our society. We're starting to develop the diseases of old age, whereas 100 years ago, the life expectancy was much shorter, and they did not develop the advanced stages of cancer and you know quite a few other diseases that uh, you know we're starting to see now with the older that our population is getting. It may have been that there was a potential for that a hundred years ago, but people did not live long enough in a lot of instances to develop this. So, you know, we're starting, the diseases that we're having now are diseases of an older group of people. Yes, should, we, should we interfere with the, the three score years and ten and try and keep people going on and on? young after all we've all got to die mm. sometime surely really. is death so terrible but Bronte's dying in their 30s of TB I think not such a good time to die mm. but look what they produced mm. yeah I'd rather die at 30 having written Jane Eyre and all the rest of it than live to be 120 and produce nothing mm. um, a short quality life I'm sure it's better than a great long drawn out. They might they might have produced many other wonderful <laughs> novels too if they lived another twenty years. <laughs> I think I think it's what I was getting originally was the the gradual advancement. I mean, how did this embryo am I on the right lines destruction as it were to help is it Parkinson's disease? You mean the, the, the fetal uh, brain yeah, fetal, yeah, graft. Yeah, that's that sort of brain thing. I'll come back to. I'd like to come back to question Sorry, of death, death in a moment. No, I, I, again, I, I, I think I would. Uh, there are very dubious results of the brain grafting. Um, some people have claimed dramatic results, but I don't think they've lasted very long, from what I've what I've heard. Um, and. Uh, but the mere I, fact I, that they've I, tried. Yeah, I, I would. I would see using, for instance. Um, generating uh, organs for grafting or transplanting, creating a life in order to take an organ from it at a later stage. I mean, there, there you have all these images of each each of us having uh, another embryo, which genetically is the same as us, being kept in a storage place. And then, when we get a certain disease, say our liver fails, then they bring this embryo out, implant it in someone grow it up to a point where they can take the liver, which is exactly the same tissue type as ours, and transplant it in us. That's the sort of brave new world scenario. Um, I don't have a problem with actually transplanting, but to actually create a life in order to take the tissue, or to use... I have a problem with using aborted uh, babies, taking the brain tissue from them. Uh, but if there is, say... Um, uh, say a spontaneous miscarriage 
um, than if the brain tissue seems to be normal. And in theory, I don't have a, an ethical problem with using it if it actually could help someone with, with Parkinson's disease. would say abortion is all right in certain circumstances, some Christians. Um, and this is where we have we have to work out what the Bible is saying on these things. But you're moving dangerously towards taking care of yourself, aren't you? Mm. But, but God has given us dominion over creation. And any medical technology, any science, any the use of medicine, you know, and just in using an antibiotic to cure someone's pneumonia is, in a sense... Um, you're, you could say you're playing God a bit there. You're preventing the person dying. <laughs> but you're really being a good steward of, of the resources he's given us. So having dominion is a godly activity. <laughs> but coming back to the issue of death, I think it's very important, our, our attitude to, to death, um, in the sense that... Um, I think death, death is an abnormality in the world that God has made. It wasn't, it, he didn't make it with that built in. It wasn't his intention. So I think we always have to, in a sense, work... Um, we have to hold two things in tension. One is the fact that he didn't create it, didn't make it that way. On the other hand, he allowed it, and he positively prevented Adam and Eve from going back into the garden and eating of the tree of life lest they live forever. And I think that was an act of mercy in preventing them from living forever in their fallen state. Yeah? Um, so that for someone who is old and senile and has cancer or whatever, you, you might pray for them to die. You wouldn't actually take active steps to help them to die, as the euthanasia movement would suggest, but rather you would help them to die with some degree of dignity. You would treat their pain whatever uh, treatment they need to, you would try and stay with them as much as possible just to be a comfort to them. Um, so I think that we, we have to, in a sense, hold two things together there, don't we? Of, of that We don't want to help people to live forever in, in a fallen world. On the other hand, we want to push back the effects of the fall and help people to live as usefully and productively and um, as, as pain-free a life as possible for as long as possible until they die. And I don't think we'll actually push the life expectancy ab the, I mean, much beyond the four score years and ten in terms of the average for the population. What is it? Do you know what it is now? I mean, a lot more people do live up to that. What did I say? Four score years and ten? <laughs> Three score years and ten. I think um, it's over that already, isn't it? A, a lot more people. Women are particularly in America. Mm -hmm. Probably it's about 18. Is it? Mm -hmm. Average. When was it reduced to four score years? And the last time, I can remember it being reduced to 120 in the Bible. Yes. Well, that's, well, that's another, that's another that's issue, isn't, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. The, yes. The, the Moses, who wrote the psalm, who said um, uh, three score years and ten, it also said that when he was 120, his eyesight was like a young... Yes, that doesn't line up, does it? It's a Moses psalm. But was he not saying that maybe... I mean, this is where it may be beyond... We may go beyond that. That the sort of average... <coughs> the, the life expectancy in a fallen world 
um, at the time that he was living is about that, that length of time. Now, because they didn't have road accidents and uh, too much, in, in, in amongst the people of Israel, too much alcohol or smoking uh, or sexual promiscuity, they probably actually lived quite a long time. Um, and it, it's interesting to, to think back, if before the flood, the life expectancy was far longer. Here we're going up into the 600s, aren't we? Um, and one can speculate on the reasons for that. I mean, some people would say, of course, that wasn't really true. But uh, I, think it, I think it is true. And, and maybe that, that after the fall, there has been a cumulative effect of sin and of genetic deformities so that you get a gradually accumulating effect of, of disease, sin, and so on, through the generations. And some people have speculated that after the flood, there was actually quite a dramatic climate change. Uh, so that, because there's quite a steep drop after the flood in, in, in the, 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 the lifespan. I think it, then it comes down to the sort of 120, 100 mark. Um, but it's, it's, an, it's a very interesting area mm -hmm. to speculate about. That question of dying has introduced other dilemmas now. To what extent medical profession should keep people alive? Um, I know there seems to be a clear case of the, you pull the plug on the machine and the body can't stay alive. Well, uh, then that's acceptable. But uh, I suppose as we get more and more advanced, we'll be get to a stage where that, a machine is not necessary, but the person would still be clinically dead. And Can you keep them alive past April the fifth, please? <laughs> Yes. So, sorry. So, what, what is your, what is your question? Well, just the, again, the, the the Christian approach to how long and to how you, we develop techniques of keeping people alive indefinitely. Mm -hmm. so I, I, I sometimes feel that um, some of the greatest advances um, have been, as you say, in lifestyle, cleaning of water and cleaning. Mm -hmm. um, and is this not a better area, perhaps, for emphasis, mm -hmm. rather than uh, repairing the damages of bad lifestyles? I think we. But when you read the New Testament, of course, you do get the impression that things are not going to get better ever. Mm -hmm. We are getting worse, aren't we, by and large? Well, the, it depends, you see, what, how, you, how you view that. I mean, I think there's, a, there's certainly the fact that we're not going to be perfect, the side of, of heaven, and that <coughs> our, our hope is in the future, everything being restored, renewed, new bodies, a new world in which we will live. Um, but before that time, we don't know exactly when Christ is going to return. And there may be times, as there have been in history, of tremendous revival and reformation and renewal. I mean, through every age of history, people have thought this is the last days, especially when something dramatically cataclysmic happens, like a war or earthquakes or something. They say, look, here's the Antichrist or whatever. Um, but if you think back in, in the 17th and 18th centuries um, and the, the state of, of, of Britain in terms of the, um, the opium addiction, the alcohol addiction. Uh, there's apparently one, just about one evangelical church in, in the whole of London um, at one point. And with the Wesleys and Whitfield 
and Wilberforce and Shaftesbury and these great evangelical social reformers, there was a tremendous change in England, the Great Awakening. There was a social change which brought about some sort of renewal and reformation. And I just pray for that again. I mean, I either pray for the Lord to come back and take us out of all this, or that there will be, that Christians should work for that. So I don't think we have to think that it's necessarily going to get worse and worse until the end. You know, we, we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we have to be working for the first fruits of the kingdom here on earth now, and not give up and think, well, there's no point in being involved because everything's going to get worse. So we may make, we have in the last hundred years seen great advances in medical technology which have improved our lifestyle enormously and life expectancy. Um, we mess it up by our stupidity. Yes, it seems that we can. man seems to be able to solve one problem, but that creates a few more, doesn't it? Well, that's where we, when what you see, I think, in, in, in the last few decades is people really turning away from God and um, the effects, the cumulative effects of sin are being felt more and more in our culture, aren't they? Just as it describes in, in Romans 1. <clears throat> where it actually describes it very dramatically um, when people suppress the truth about God and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator brings its own judgment. And, and it, in a sense that turning away as you say brings its own judgment um, they, although they claimed to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator and you see an enormous amount of idolatry not in terms of worshipping images but worship of materialism uh, in, in our own culture. Um, and, and you see the sexual immorality, depraved minds filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossipers, slanderers, arrogant, boastful, etc., etc. In a sense, we, we live in a time when people are doing just that, aren't they? And, and, and reaping the effects of that in their own lives. Sure. Yeah. <clears throat> and we, we pray that you know we don't have to sort of sit down under that and say well this is going to go on we have to get out there and actually do something to try and stem the tide with the help of, of the Holy Spirit 